Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're getting very close to finishing. We're going to come come up a couple verses shy at least, but uh, those are good verses that we can work on next week. And by the way, as Randy's been focusing the last couple weeks on children's ministry, it came to me, I was thinking about how we often emphasize around here the priority that we place on the teaching of the Word of God and not just bits and pieces here and there. We don't just pick our favorite scriptures and teach on those all the time or uh, cherry pick or uh, what they call proof texting. That's very popular today where you come up with your own doctrine and then you try to find scriptures that tend to support what you believe. That's called proof texting. We try to be expositional in our teaching, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, so that we can lay a firm foundation for our lives uh, from the Word of God. And it dawned on me, as Randy was sharing, uh, we talk about how there are a lot of churches today that really aren't doing that. They're not consistently teaching through the Scriptures. Uh, they're A lot of times they're teaching out of a psychology book or, you know, even back when I was a teenager and going to a, an American Baptist church in Southern California, there was a great uh, spiritual revival in Southern California called the Jesus Movement, and I saw that touch virtually every denomination. And so even within that Baptist church, there was a powerful move of the Spirit in the youth group, and it, God really used that to bring me back to the Lord. But I know in terms of their uh, the services and the way the... The, the preaching and teaching was done, it was usually read one or two Bible verses and then tell some stories. That's how they did it. I love my pastor and his wife and the, everybody in the church, but there wasn't any real spiritual feeding going on, in my opinion. And that's why, why and how I wound up at Calvary uh, Chapel, Costa Mesa with Pastor Chuck Smith. But as Randy was sharing, it dawned on me, wait a minute, so if the adults in a particular church are not being fed a solid, consistent, spiritual diet from the Word of God, then most likely it's not happening in the children's ministry either. And I'm going to tell you right now, as much as I love you guys and as much as I cherish the opportunity that I have to, to teach you each week, I believe that what's happening in the kids' ministry is even more important. And it was because of my grandmother, my aunts. My parents didn't attend church. But my grandmother and my aunts made sure that I got to church just about every week to Sunday school. And that's where I accepted Christ at about four years of age. And we did get taught the scriptures. We had the flannel graphs. And we got taught the stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so I grew up with a, a basic knowledge of the Scriptures and that laid a foundation for my life that has never gone away. So even as most of us here, I would hope, I would think, appreciate the fact that we're able to consistently study the Scriptures week in and week out. Please don't take for granted the fact that the kids are getting the same thing. And you may not have small children. Maybe your children are grown. Maybe you don't have kids at all. But you have contact with somebody's kids. 
And just like my grandmother, my aunts and uncles were corporately committed to making sure that little Gary got to church. I want to challenge you guys here today to do that. Bring some kids with you. Find them. Seek them out. Because more and more, when I was young, a large percentage of our population had some basic knowledge and understanding of the Bible. Today that is gone. If you go out on the streets and survey young people, they don't know Jesus from Shaquille O'Neal. They don't know anything about the Bible, even young adults. You watch some of these guys, even like Jay Leno and different TV personalities that for whatever reason have decided to go out and do a Bible quiz. People are clueless. They know nothing about God, nothing about the Scriptures, and the best time to get a hold of them and teach them and train them is when they're little, when they're children, before they've been completely polluted and corrupted by this world. And their hearts have become hardened to the point that they don't want to hear it. Little kids want to hear it. You heard Randy's testimony today. But that's, I think it's a responsibility we should all take to try to get children here, even if we can't get, the, if we can get the whole family, all the better. Right? But if we can't, let's focus on the kids. You might have to do a little salesmanship. But just think, Bob, if I pick up your kids for church, you can sit around in your underwear and drink coffee and watch sports. Wouldn't that be great? And they won't be bothering you. You, got, you might have to do a little salesmanship to talk them into it. But if you can show those parents that it's going to be to their benefit for you to take their kids to church, they just might let you do it. Consider that. Pray about that. In fact, we've had an ongoing discussion for I don't know how many years about the fact that we have these two 15-passenger vans out here that we could be going around the neighborhood picking up kids for church, but we've never been able to get anyone to commit on an ongoing, consistent basis to drive the vans. If we had some folks that were willing to do that, we could bring another 30 kids to church. See, the Baptists had that figured out years ago. You seen all the big yellow Baptist buses? They would go out and gather up kids by the, by the hundreds. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing to get those kids into church. Anyway, 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's read verses 18 through 23. Servants. Be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the hard. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth? Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return? When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So now, we're continuing on with Peter's discussion which we began last week concerning submission and this whole section on Christian conduct. How should Christians conduct themselves? Because being a Christian is more than just calling yourself a Christian. Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. 
So Peter is talking about what constitutes the evidence that we are truly followers of Christ. So he continues his discussion on submission, and he now focuses on the servant master or slave master, or in today's cultural application, employee-employer relationship. So let's pray. Father God, we lift up this time in Your Word. Thank You for it. We pray that You would be here with us, that Your Holy Spirit would be our teacher to instruct us, to lead us, to guide us into all truth. Lord, that we might continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 18, he starts out, servants, or some translations read slaves. And it's referring to what they would had called in Paul's day, household servants. The normal Greek word for slave is not used here, so it probably includes multiple categories of servants. Uh, there were actually what they call freed men, men who had purchased their freedom, uh, but they would remain in the master's house because they liked their job, they had a good job, they needed a job. And so even after they had purchased their freedom, they would stay on. And by the way, servants and slaves made up a high percentage of the early church. Many of those in the early church. In fact, it's, it correlates much with our own nation's history where, again, there's nothing good about slavery, but God uses what appears to be negative for His own positive purposes. And one of the things that took place in the American South leading up to World War II and even, or excuse me, the Civil War and even afterwards was, it might seem strange to you and I living in the 21st century, but the southern states, now we call them the Bible Belt, they were actually the more spiritually inclined part of our nation leading up to the Civil War. I know it seems like a strange dichotomy that they were practicing slavery and yet Christianity flourished in the Old South. And what happened was many of these slaves who had been brought over from Africa, and by the way, many times they were sold into slavery by other Africans and by Arabs from Northern Africa it wasn't just a white phenomenon. As I mentioned, I think last week, slavery has been around almost from the beginning of human history and every group known to man in Central and South America, the Aztecs, the Mayans, different groups, they would enslave other tribes. So I think it's important to understand it's a universal issue that when man is not reconciled to God, then regardless of his color, his tendency is to want to enslave other men. Get it? But what happened was, these folks who were brought over from Africa as slaves, it was horrible, I'm not endorsing it in any way, shape, or form, but guess what happened? They came out of a pagan worship system, worshiping demons and idols, were brought to America sadly as slaves, but they came to know God. And as a matter of fact, 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 30s ordered a national census, if you will, of all the surviving slaves from that era. So this is some, like, quite a while later. These were people probably who were very young at the time of the Civil War, but still living. And they did a national survey, and many came forth with that testimony. You won't hear that today in very many places. You definitely won't hear it in the public schools or in the history textbooks. But there were many instances where these people actually expressed thankfulness for the opportunity to come here and to come to know the true God. That's a fact. I'm not making it up. If you have a choice of being a free person and going to hell or being a slave and meeting the Lord Jesus Christ and going to heaven, which one would you choose? God used a very evil, bad system, but again, we're judging it from a 21st century perspective when even here in the Scriptures, Paul is not dealing with the subject of whether or not it's fair to be a slave. He's addressing what is. These people are in that situation. And his focus is on their conduct, not on the right or the wrong of that institution. And that was probably the argument that people in the Deep South used prior to the Civil War. They saw in the Scriptures Paul teaching people about their conduct no matter what place they were in life. And by the way, there are many ways in which to enslave someone. And I would propose to you today that there's been a massive attempt by many governments all over the world, including our own, to enslave you. It's just not as simple and cut and dried as people try to make it. But I, I could go on and on, but let's look at this. So slaves or servants. And so obviously, just like any arena of life, you have some great bosses, you have some mediocre bosses. You have some horrible bosses, right? And so there were masters in Paul's day and in the early history of our nation. There were some who were good, fair, just. And then there were times when undeserved punishment and suffering was commonplace. It happened. You know, there's an old spaghetti western. I think Clint Eastwood was in it. I but it was called the good, the bad, and the ugly. Remember that? And that's really a pretty good description of life. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about the workplace with employee-employer relations. You're talking about a master-servant, master-slave relation. There's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And poorer people would often voluntarily sell themselves into servitude in order to provide for themselves and their families. Just like people today, in a sense, sell themselves into servitude. If your boss tells you you're going to work 18 hours a day or you can hit the road, you're probably going to do it because you've got to support your family. But that's really abusive. It's not right. But sometimes people have to do what they have to do. So today, most people are subject to a boss or to more than one boss. And they have to be submissive to them in order to maintain their livelihood. And what does Peter say? Be submissive. 
So even as we saw last week, how we are to submit to governmental authority. And again, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly there too. We're also to submit to those that we work for. And it makes sense because they're the ones that sign our paychecks. With all fear, or some translations use the word respect. With all fear or respect. And here's you know where it can get a little tricky. We can be submitting outwardly, but be grumbling and angry inside. None of us have ever done that though, right? But that's not the way that we're to do it. Because God looks at the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says if you think it, you've done it. If you're angry with someone, if you hate someone, Jesus says it's the same as if you've murdered them. So, simply being outwardly submissive and being inwardly grumbling, complaining, angry, that's not the way to do it. We can and should, again, respect their rank, their office, regardless of how they behave. You say that's quite a challenge. Yes, it is. But that's what sets us apart from the world. That ability that we have through the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, to do what just doesn't come natural. Be submissive with all fear or respect, not only to the good and gentle. So Peter is acknowledging, yeah, some of you servants may be fortunate enough to have a master who's good and gentle, or one translation says considerate. Gentle or good and good and considerate. So some bosses are kind and considerate, overlooking understandable errors and exercising the proper balance between discipline and mercy. And those kinds of bosses are honestly pretty easy to submit to, right? And you, you wish every boss, every person in a position of authority understood that. When they're harsh and critical and unforgiving, I call that negative reinforcement. You know, a soft answer turns away wrath and so forth. Certainly, they should know and understand that their employees will be more productive when they're treated kindly, fairly, and so forth. But some don't understand that. And they only know one way to be in charge, and that's to be harsh. So he says, not only to the good and gentle are we to be submissive, but also to the harsh. So Paul's acknowledging there will be some that are good and gentle. There will be others that are harsh. It's very interesting here, the Greek word skolios. It literally means curved, bent, or not straight. You probably recognize the word. The medical term scoliosis, referring to a curvature of the spine, comes from this word. The harsh, the scolios. And really what it's saying is that some people in positions of authority, I'm afraid to give any ammunition here to feed any fuel to the fire, but it means that some of them are twisted. There may be someone sitting here thinking, yeah, I know that, boss. Some people in positions of authority are scolios. They are twisted. Peter wants the believers that he's writing to, and that includes us, he wants the Christian servants, slaves, employees 
to submit regardless of their master's character. He's not giving us any permission here to be rebellious or disrespectful to the ones that are twisted. He says in verse 19, For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. The word commendable here is the Greek word charis, charismatic, charisma, which means for this is grace. This is grace. It is the grace of God that enables us to do this and we are showing forth His grace as we do it. Have you ever said this about someone? Or maybe had someone say this about you? Boy, they are really gracious. Right? Unmerited favor. Gracious. Being gracious. To do this, Peter says, is to be gracious. It's commendable. This is something that is worthy of commendation. Charis, grace, if because of conscience toward God, or it could be translated because he is conscious of God. In other words, what enables us to be gracious like this, to, to be respectful, even if the person in authority over us is not easy to respect, it's because we're conscious of God. We're aware of God. We have relationship with God. We have become the recipients of His grace and therefore by the power of His Holy Spirit and the transformation that takes place as we feed upon, study, meditate upon the Word of God, we are able then to extend that same grace to others. Not because they deserve it. How many of you here today have been forgiven of your sins, set free, filled with the Holy Spirit, Become recipients of the precious gift of eternal life because you deserve it. Gotcha! Because you deserve it. Not a one of us. So, you see, God has given us what we don't deserve. You might think, my boss doesn't deserve my respect. He or she is a jerk. Peter says otherwise. Because we're doing it because of conscience toward God. Or because we are conscious of God. It is the awareness of God's love for us and the relationship we have with Him that enables us to rise above what has been called man's inhumanity to man. You see, it's kind of interesting that people are so appalled. Again, we've talked about slavery. Horrible institution. Thank God we don't have it anymore. But there are many ways in which man abuses his fellow man. People act shocked and surprised by that. But what else would you expect from an unregenerate, lost, sinful person that doesn't know God? People are shocked when sinners act like sinners. And sadly, they should be shocked when Christians act like sinners, but instead, they're not. It's backwards. They're shocked when sinners act like sinners, 
but not shocked when Christians do because most people think Christians are fakes, phonies, and hypocrites. Why do they think that? Because many times we are. So let's be honest. That's why what Peter's telling us is so important. He wants us to send a message to the world. We are not fake. We are not phony. We are not hypocrites. We've been transformed by the renewing of our minds. We've been born again by the Spirit of God. And we're different now. In Christ, we should be able to rise above man's inhumanity to man. We're to strive to please God, not men. That's a big key here. Ultimately, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. And to be more concerned about, check this out. Instead of being so concerned about the injustice that we have suffered, we should be more concerned about our response to the injustice that we've suffered than to the injustice itself. How often can we honestly say that that's the fact, that that's the truth, that we're more concerned about our response than we are about the injustice we believe that we have suffered? Our response should be our number one concern. Are we responding in a Christ-like, godly manner? Or are we responding the way that any unregenerate sinner would respond? Again, just because we've been born again, that doesn't mean we're no longer sinners. But now we are sinners saved by grace. And we understand the importance of regular confession and repentance to maintain a right relationship with God. So it's commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. And that begs the question, would God allow and even perhaps require His kids to suffer? Yes, is the answer. There are those who would say, well, how could He be such a loving God if He allows us and perhaps even requires in certain circumstances that we suffer? The reason is to grow us to strengthen us, to show us those we are submitted to, the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. So it's for our own benefit as well as for the benefit of those around us. If you've ever been involved, and I'm not saying that I have, but in like with a personal trainer, or maybe you, some of you guys have been in football or various athletic pursuits, ladies too, military, you could argue that the people who are over you, overseeing your training, are causing you to suffer, right? But it's for your own good, right? No pain, no gain. See, a father that doesn't care about you or doesn't love you might say, whatever, go do your thing, don't bother me. Do you want to eat junk food and gain 100 pounds and turn out like Jabba the Hutt, go for it. No, a loving father would say, listen, mister, you're going to get out there, you're going to exercise, whatever it might be, whether it's like the military drill instructor, your personal trainer, your football coach, right? They're trying to help you be all that you can be, right? God's the same way. He, he cares. He loves you. And therefore, He does allow and perhaps at times even require that you suffer 
learn how to endure grief, suffer wrongfully to make you stronger, and to be a witness to those around you, again, being examples of God's grace. There's a quote, I don't know who it came from, but I like it. It says, God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop, right? Broken clouds to give rain. Broken grain to give bread. Broken bread to give strength. It is the broken alabaster box that gives forth perfume. Remember when Mary broke the box with the perfume and poured it on Jesus' head? Or his feet? It is Peter, weeping bitterly after his betrayal, who returns to greater power than ever. And Peter, the one writing this book, God uses broken things. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, we saw last week. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. We have to remember that we're doing it for God. It's all about Him, it's all because of Him, and it's all for Him. A man named Victor E. Frankel said, Man can endure almost any suffering if he can see a purpose or meaning in it. Conversely, he will be miserable even amidst great luxury if he cannot relate his life to some larger context which makes it meaningful. And I would propose to you that the only thing that really makes our lives meaningful when push comes to shove is knowing God, loving God, and serving God. <laughs> Certainly, we find meaning in our families, our spouses, our children, other family members, our church family. We find meaning, but ultimately, it's because we know God we have relationship with God and we know our eternal destination. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Verse 20, 1 Peter 2.20 For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer if you take it patiently this is commendable before God. Several things we see here. There are things that we do in life that are worthy of commendation from God. And again, that should be our number one priority is to live a life pleasing to God. It also speaks of the fact that there will be eternal rewards in heaven and God's eternal kingdom. And they will be based upon these kinds of actions and activities. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the Bema Seat, where we are not judged for our sins, but our works are judged. And based upon the outcome of that judgment, we receive whatever rewards we're going to receive. What credit is it? So we get credits, if you will. Eternal credits so that when we stand before God, those credits uh, will determine what rewards we do or do not receive. And he's saying, there's no credit for enduring punishment 
for doing wrong. And to say you're suffering for Christ when you're merely being punished for doing something wrong, that's not legitimate. I think people do that sometimes. What is to our credit is respectful submission to undeserved suffering. That pleases God because such behavior demonstrates His grace. There's an old proverb, not a biblical proverb, but you know an old saying that goes like this. Better to suffer ill than to do ill. Get it? All right, verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Now, this takes it even a step further where Peter says this is actually our calling. Ekklethete. Now, all men suffer in this life. It's part of the life that we live here on earth. There will be suffering because we live in a fallen world, in a fallen state. But as Christians, see, for the world, suffering is a negative consequence, again, of living under the fall. But for the believer, it's actually a positive consequence. It is our calling. It involves bearing up under undue punishment and persecution with a right attitude to suffer for doing good. How many churches today will you hear this kind of a message? In fact, we had a joke years ago. We were down on uh, Lead Avenue there in the old uh, Mormon church across from Milne Stadium. And uh, we were studying through the book of James. And there was a lot of stuff in there that seemed to be, have to do with suffering. And so we talked about putting a banner out on front of the church and it would say, come suffer with us at Calvary Chapel. Then it was southeast. How many people would come to a church like that? Come suffer with us. Now, if you put out come prosper with us, you'd probably get a lot of takers. But it's actually our calling. I don't think that's something many of us embrace very willingly or wholeheartedly, but it is biblical, it is scriptural. John sixteen thirty three. These things I have spoken to you, says Jesus that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So there's the dual promise there. On the one hand, Jesus pretty much promises we're going to have tribulation in this world, but he says we can have peace at the same time because joy and peace and righteousness in the Holy Ghost, as Paul talks about in the book of Romans, does not depend upon our circumstances. It depends upon our relationship with God. John 15, 18 and 19. If the world hates you, says Jesus, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Next time you're tempted to have a pity party, just remember, Jesus said, well, they hated me first. If you were of the world, identify with the world, behave like the world, participate in the things of the world. If you were of the world, the world will love its own. Boy, how many times I've seen this. People, prominent people, whether it's the entertainment industry or any arena of life that have come to a true saving faith in Christ. 
their popularity drops like a lead balloon. You ever seen that? Bob Dylan back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s became a Christian, became very outspoken about his faith, released about three Christian albums in a row. And when he went out and did concerts, he began to do a lot of his gospel music. And believe it or not, for those of you who don't remember, he was booed. Today, he just got on, what, a Nobel Prize not long ago. And he's venerated as this great icon of, of modern music and so forth. But he was mercilessly persecuted during the time period when he was very outspoken about his Christianity. Now, there are many reports he's still a believer. But what happened was he received such strong negative blowback that he backed way off on his public dialogue about his faith. But there's a guy that wrote a book here recently about the spirituality of Bob Dylan. They ran a series of articles on World Net Daily exploring the spirituality within his music. And it's actually still there. It's just more subtle. But there have been so many that they can be so popular and so loved by the world. But the minute they come out as a believer, their popularity goes down the tubes. Confirming what Jesus says. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We all want to be liked. We all want to be accepted. We don't like having people hate us, obviously. But I would say one of the scariest things that we could face is that if the world likes us too much. If you're, the, if you're too popular with the worldly set, you might have a problem. Just saying. To this you were called, and then Peter gives us a really good reason why. Because Christ also suffered for us. Should the pupil, the, the student, the disciple expect anything different than that which the master has received? Christ also suffered for us a reminder from Peter of what Jesus went through for us. Though he was and is the master of the universe, he submitted to his unjust executioners out of love for us. The next time you're tempted to think, there's no way I'm submitting to that person. They're an idiot. In fact, my pastor told me, they're twisted. Well, it doesn't get much more twisted than what they did to Jesus. But what did he do? He submitted. He submitted. He's our role model. He's our example. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, Paul writes. How many of you want to know him? Yes. And the power of his resurrection. How many of you want to know that? Yeah. And the fellowship of his sufferings. How many of you want to know that? Uh, being conformed to his death. Paul said, I no longer live. I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And I think what Paul is telling us here, if we want to know him and the power of his resurrection, then we must also be willing to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. It's a package deal. Being conformed to his death, dying to self. I've told you before, dead people don't get offended. 
you can get right in their face and call them all kinds of names. They don't even react. Hey, man, you're really ugly. <laughs> Nothing. So is your mama. No reaction. Dead people don't get offended. Dead people don't react. And dead people are very submissive. Aren't they? Just ask your local mortician. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Hippogramon in the Greek, the example, the hippogramon, interesting, it means an underwriting, which was a model of handwriting set up by teachers for their pupils to copy. Just like kids in school, they get the little sheet, and the first line, the letters are written in already. Although, from what I understand, they don't teach uh, cursive writing anymore, which I think is horrible, ridiculous, and a shame. I think we do in our school. I hope we do. We better. Anybody from the school listening? That is absolutely ridiculous to not teach kids cursive writing. Not surprising. But they get the sheet. The letters are already on there. And then they're to copy them. That is how we're to be with Christ that you should follow His steps, leave an example. Hippogramon, Christ left us an example. So we're to look at His example and then we're to write out the story of our lives by looking at His example. That you should follow His steps. And Jesus walked the path of a humble servant, submitted to governmental authority, and submitted as a slave, if you will, to the unjust masters of Israel, though he was innocent of all charges, he submitted to their judgment, allowed them to put him to death. And again, as I mentioned earlier, how for the world, the negative consequences of suffering, for Christ, his death was his victory and then our victory. They thought that they had won they had put this insurrectionist to death, this troublemaker who was about to overturn everything that they were hanging on to so dearly. Their power, their positions, their money, their influence. They saw Jesus about to tear it all down and take it all away. And so they killed him and they thought they had won. And even the devil thought he had won. He'd been trying to destroy the seed of the Messiah forever since Cain slew Abel. And in that moment, as Christ hung on that cross and breathed His last, all the powers of hell believed they had won. And in fact, they didn't realize they were about to witness the greatest victory in the history of the human race when Christ rose from the dead. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to His disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, in other words, to be a follower of Christ. That's what it means to be a believer, to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Self-denial, that is the cross of Christ. Self-denial, and that produces suffering in many ways. When we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and follow me, Jesus said. If that's what you, 
If you want to be my follower, this is what you must do. So to be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ. It involves self-denial, carrying the cross of unjust suffering in order to show forth God's grace to the world. And again, for better or for worse, in America, most of us have not really endured that much unjust suffering as a result of our faith. And I'm not sure that's necessarily good because as we look around the world at various places where people really are enduring severe unjust suffering, we could argue that the body of Christ is much stronger. Again, as I said earlier, God allows it because it does strengthen us. And we do see it on the increase even in America. And part of the reason we don't see more unjust suffering on the part of believers is that we're not Christian enough to be persecuted. It's like that old saying, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Ouch. That's one of those little owies, right? Because it, it hits home. It hits home. And again, there is no credit for being punished for doing wrong. But oftentimes, believers want to kind of cloak their deserved punishment by, oh, I'm being persecuted. I'm suffering for Christ. No, you're not. You're suffering because you blew it. There's a big difference. There's no credit for that. In fact, there might even be some negative credits for that. Okay? Okay, verse 22. This is still speaking of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our role model, our example, who committed no sin. Wow, okay, so Jesus submitted to twisted authority figures even though He was perfect. And we're not. We have committed sins. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. Which none of us can say that. We've all told a little white lie or two at the very least, right? Peter's quoting here from Isaiah 53.9. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. So he hung there on the cross with wicked men. But then he was buried in the tomb of the rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so even though they tried to portray Christ as this wicked man worthy of crucifixion, God, even in the midst of that, suddenly honored Christ by having him buried in the tomb of a rich man because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus had done nothing in word or deed to deserve punishment. James 3.2 We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man able also to bridle the whole body. So James ties together our words and our actions. Jesus was not guilty of doing anything wrong, either in word or in deed. And again, this reminds us that sometimes we submit with our bodies, but we rebel with our tongues. And that's actually even more harmful. We go out and we gossip or we backbite. We slander. Right? 
that ties in with this whole idea. You can act submissive in front of the person that you're supposed to be submitting to, but if you go out and undermine them, trash talk them, you're in big time sin, I'm sorry to tell you. Your words and your actions have to line up. Verse 23, our last verse today. Who, when he was reviled, or when they hurled insults, he did not revile or insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. In fact, remember when he was on the cross, he looked down at the men killing him and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Remember that? That's a biggie. He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. When they hurled insults, he did not retaliate. 1 Peter 3.9 Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling or insult for insult, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this. So we hear that again. You were called to this. We're called to suffer because Christ suffered. And then we're also called to bless those who revile us, who insult us, that you may inherit a blessing. Again, therein lies the reward. Therein lies the credit, the commendation. Again, it's easy to be nice to somebody who's nice to you. But the true mark of a believer and that outward evidence that you become a recipient of God's grace is that you show grace to those who do not show grace to you. And the result is that we will inherit a blessing. And again, it's sad that so much of what is talked about in the church today has to do with the here and now when God's concerned with eternity. The blessings, the rewards that we receive in eternity will be with us how long? Forever. Whatever we get in this life is temporary and superficial. And sadly, so much of the so-called teachings in the churches today has to do with the here and now. God's all about eternity. Eternal blessings, eternal rewards, the kinds that you get to keep forever. He did not threaten. Certainly as Lord of all, He could have threatened them with divine judgment, couldn't He? But He didn't. He committed Himself to Him who judges righteously or justly. Jesus, and here this is really the key and the answer for all of us. The reason Jesus could submit to His persecutors because He knew that ultimately He would be vindicated by the righteous judge, God the Father. People who are seeking for vindication in this life are frustrated, discouraged, disappointed. When we come to realize and understand that true justice only comes from God who is altogether just, it will be much easier for us to submit to imperfect human authority. You know, there are those who would say, I demand justice. And we have today this whole class of individuals which have come to be known as the social justice warriors. Right? They're out there and they're willing to kill for peace if they have to. Right? And they're out there fighting against racism while behaving as racists. Fighting against violence while being the most violent of all. Social justice warriors. 
But anyone who says, I demand justice, had better get right with God. Because ultimately, He's the only one who offers up true, pure, absolute, undeniable justice. Anybody who says, I want justice, should be saying, I want God. Because there's no justice without Him. Much of the anger and frustration we see with people today is due to the fact that they expect justice from human courts and from their fellow man. But man is flawed, imperfect, sinful, and incapable of meeting out justice except when man follows God's laws. Think once upon a time in America. Once upon a time in America... Our legal system, our judicial system was based upon the laws of God and it worked pretty well. And then they decided to take down the Ten Commandments. And they decided to cast aside true wisdom and try to figure it out on their own. And it ain't working very well. And by the way, one final thought, and then I'm going to read a couple of verses from a famous hymn. Our focus should not be on seeing the other guy get his. Our focus should be on looking forward to getting ours when we stand before God. Let me read these two verses from Blessed Assurance. Verses 2 and 3. Perfect submission. Perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending. Bring from above echoes of mercy. Whispers of love perfect submission all is at rest i and my savior am happy and blessed watching and waiting looking above filled with his goodness lost in his love let's pray father we ask for your help we do want to follow in the footsteps of our lord and savior jesus christ lord we we recognize and realize we cannot do or be the people you've called us to be and the things you've called us to do apart from the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us. Even as we have received grace, unmerited favor, getting what we don't deserve, Lord, we are now called to impart that to those around us, to honor those in authority over us, whether it's in the workplace, in the in the schoolroom, the classroom, whatever arena of life in which we find ourselves under someone else's authority, Lord, help us to remember that we are submitting for you, as unto you, for your glory, to, be, to display your grace to this world in which we live. And Father, we recognize this morning that if we can't follow these directives and be submissive to earthly authority, then we're probably not in submission to you either. And that is the highest priority of all, that we would be in that perfect submission is the song we just read. Perfect submission, Lord. And we know that that results in peace and joy. Blessing. Reward. We ask for your help. We ask for the filling and empowering of your Holy Spirit that we might follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.